welcome to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Brown, and we're bringing you news and views with guests from all over the field. The discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. This is Matt Spraker, one of the co-hosts of the Accelerators podcast, and I'm going to try doing a solo show, kind of like my friends uh, Simmel and Jason Bechta, who uh, have kind of dabbled in this, this type of show. Um, I wanted to uh, release this episode to kind of give my opinions um, about the rocker policy that was released last week, but more globally about societies and ASTRO. Um, before I give those opinions, I do want to kind of share my background. Uh, these aren't really conflicts of interest. They're more like drivers of interest, but I think it's important to understand my background before I share my opinions so they make sense in that context. So real quick, um, I started in radiation oncology uh, at UW in Seattle. Um, I had a great residency there. I was there for four years and trained uh, with a number of people. Um, um, after I left UW, uh, I interviewed around. And just like the average resident, I had about one to two job offers. Uh, and I ended up graduating and going to Wash U in St. Louis. Um, it was a good opportunity, and I learned a ton when I was there. And that's where I really started to get involved in societies. Um, when I graduated, I was told that you should join ASTRO and join a committee. Um, it's an important thing to do for the field and important to give service. And then this actually was repeated to me as a number of people at Washington University hold positions in ASTRO. And there's a history of that. And so as this came up, there was just lots of enthusiasm about supporting ASTRO and volunteering for the society. So I did exactly that. And like a lot of the passionate volunteer physicians inside ASTRO, I got pretty involved. Um, I did a number of projects on the communications committee. I'll link to those just for reference um, and worked on a number of things in the MDQA committee as well. Um, around the time of COVID, things started to change for me a little bit, uh, primarily because I think I was starting to meet people kind of outside of my small academic sphere. And um, I just started to hear more and more about the full world of radiation oncology. And some things that stick out in my mind as being kind of eye-openers were better understanding the whole, quote, bloodbath in the Red Journal thing with Dr. Chirag Shah and the workforce. Um, I had read the Gray Piece article that we've referenced a few times that Todd Scarborough and Simul Parikh wrote. Um, and then when I saw the VV, VVPN uh, presentation about the job market and noticed that Simul's monologue speech on there was transcribed to SDN, I started to realize that there were a lot of um, varied opinions of these complex issues in the field. Um, I just got a much better understanding of the wide array of opinions of radiation oncologists um, as I got to meet more of them. Around this time, we started the podcast. Uh, we've had a great experience with that so far. And when we started the podcast, we actually had a pretty good relationship with Astro. I'd point people to our ROAPM episode. It's one of my favorite episodes. It's one of the most popular episodes in terms of downloads. Um, and it just was an excellent overview of Astro's approach to designing a payment model at that time, the ROAPM. And I really do want to shout out Dr. Constantine Mance, or Connie Mance, who was on the podcast, volunteered to um, come on. He was exceptionally informative. We had awesome conversations about the history of these payment models and the way that radiation oncologists have interacted with insurance companies and payers. Um, and it was just, it was great. 
Um, and of course, at that time, following my interests, I got more passionate about Astro and I started to work on advocacy as well, interfacing with some of the staffers that were on that show. Now, soon after that, things started to change for me a little bit at work and personally, and then also with the podcast and its relationship to Astro. Um, just quickly for myself, um, around that time, I think I started to get burned out. Um, we don't talk about burnout that often, but I can admit that I suffered that pretty severely at the end of my time at WashU, and I'm just getting out of that now about a year later. Um, maybe we'll reflect on that more in a later show. But I was pretty busy clinically. I'll let you know that I did about 12,000 RVUs in my busiest year. Remember this number. Um, and I didn't feel that the pay was very transparent. So that was a major reason that led to my burnout, but also probably taking on way too much extracurricular stuff outside of my clinical work and just trying to do too many things. But around the same time, what happened with the podcast was that Astro had sort of soured a little bit on us due to a comment that Simmel made on SDN, which is an anonymous forum, uh, but under his real name. And that resulted in a phone call from a staffer. And what I was told on this phone call was that due to Simmel's comment about someone on the executive committee, the staff were no longer able to be supporting the podcasts. And so, okay, that kind of sucked, but fine. Uh, we didn't do any podcasts. I did some tweeting and advocacy day that year. And that was basically it. As you know, later on, we did some podcasts about the workforce. Uh, we did a number of shows analyzing data and evaluating issues with potential oversupply, undersupply. We started to make more comments on Twitter about this topic. Um, I was still part of Astro and the committees. Um, and at that time, I actually did ask to switch from the communications committee to the workforce committee uh, for two reasons. One, I was very interested in the workforce. We'd done a bunch of shows on it, and I was doing a lot of reading and really enjoyed uh, this topic. And then also, I was obviously forming a podcast and a media group, so it kind of is a little bit of a conflict of interest, and I felt like I can't volunteer to do committees uh, communication stuff for Astro anymore. Unfortunately, despite the fact that I did have the support of a prominent member of the workforce committee and this person's recommendation to join the committee, I was told that the committee was closed and not accepting any new members. Um, this actually wasn't entirely surprising because around this time, I started to hear from more and more radiation oncologists about the general closed nature of ASTRO. I have talked to many people that I think would have been excellent volunteers on committees and told me they had applied many times and were never able to get in. Uh, I talked to a couple of early career members that were on committees and were never invited to the meetings. Um, certainly, none of this means that there was any malintent there, but I was getting more of a sense that there maybe is a closed culture inside the ASTRO organization. And I will say that this is not inconsistent with my experience as a committee volunteer. Um, sometimes I would suggest things and then they would you know, go up to be talked about with leaders and we'd sort of come back and not get very much feedback or hear things you know, couldn't be done for unclear reasons. Uh, lots of stuff. And so generally, I just sort of got this sense over time, um, both with my experiences and talking to others. There's one other piece of history that's important. So right at the end of the time that I was in St. Louis, I was invited to join PTCOG, which is the Proton Therapy Cooperative Group. I was asked to join their board as a director of communications. The goal really was to do Twitter posts and interesting projects to try to elevate the membership and, and you know, support the organization. Um, I did like volunteering. I still do. And so I did volunteer for that. 
And that really gave me sort of an inside look at the Proton world. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it, but really the PTCOG organization views themselves as kind of like the scientific Proton organization. And importantly, this compares with what's called NAPT, which is another U.S. organization that, in my opinion, acts more like a lobby group. I know others share this opinion, but um, I'll just take credit for my own here. Um, I did ultimately step down from that position after a short time. Uh, This was part of shedding a lot of volunteer hours that I felt like I couldn't support in my burned out state. And then again, uh, we were kind of formalizing the podcast and Photon Media, and it just felt weird to kind of volunteer to do communications for organizations when I was running Photon Media. However, I would tell you that I learned a lot about the Proton world at my time there. Um, I would say that, you know, like a lot of things, there's a large number of very dedicated and passionate volunteer physicians that are doing excellent scientific work in the proton world. But what's different about that world is to me, there's also a very large number of vocal non-physicians that are pretty passionate about making sure proton therapy is available to as many patients as possible. Some of those non-physicians really do believe in the modality and believe it's helpful, but it's hard not to see that a lot of these people have just strong conflicts of interest. Proton therapy is a high capital expense. It can be quite lucrative. There's a lot of centers being built. It's not hard to see how a lot of people, let's just say, have a conflict. So look, you know, I'm basically a passionate, you know, early career radiation oncologist that wanted to be involved with lots of things, definitely struggled with some burnout, uh, left a lot of those things for complicated and multifactorial reasons, but I was gaining a much better appreciation that there actually are a wide range of radiation oncologists that are sort of outside these small academic circles, outside ASTRO, and they're actually pretty unhappy with some of the way things are done and advocated for in our field. A big shift for me came at the end of last academic year, so last summer, um, when I decided to change jobs. But around that time, I found that I was giving lots of advice to um, residents and medical students. And one of the things people would reach out to me often about was jobs. I think we did a number of podcasts on the workforce and I had interacted with a lot of people. So I at least appeared knowledgeable, whether that's true or not. A lot of people did reach out and I often would seek data to counsel people on their jobs and their contracts. And so I looked around to see what salary data was available. Um, It's no secret at this point that I'm pretty upset about the fact that SCARop, so this is the uh, chairs sub organization inside Astro. So the chairs of radiation oncology of academic departments all get together every year and they make a survey. Um, They collect essentially highly complicated salary data, lots of information about the way people are working in their departments, and then they make that available online. Last summer when I went onto the Astro website, it was very clear that that was available for purchase. So I filled out the order gave them the order and expected my credit card to be charged. And I was going to use this information to help counsel residents and medical students. Um, I didn't hear anything for a few weeks, so I reached out to Astro and got an email back from another non-physician executive within the organization who told me that this is not available for purchase by me. It's only available for purchase by certain members. At the time, none of this was listed on the website, and I asked who. Um, A little time passed, and the website changed. And all of a sudden, it became that only chairs or members of SCARUP could buy this survey. Not anyone, even though that's how it was published on the website before. And yes, we do have screenshots and change logs to show that this was changed around the time that I asked for the email. 
Now, I was pretty vocal about this. There were a lot of radiation oncologists that reached out. The fact is, I personally still do not think it's fair that um, people who are hiring more than half of the graduating residents each year get to gather once a year, survey each other about pay, and then use that information to negotiate hiring without giving that information to anyone else. Um, I'm pretty sure there are laws about that, but that's outside the scope of this podcast. I just personally do not think it's fair but certainly do not think this is very supportive of radiation oncologists. So here you have it. You have a passionate early career radiation oncologist that was kind of naive and eager, learned a bunch of things, experienced a bunch of things, became a little skeptical, and now has been burned a couple of times. And certainly some of my disappointment is a little bit selfish, but at the end of the day, the scar up thing, the survey that really showed me and made me question whether Astro is really advocating for me and my peers, or if the entire organization is really steered in a direction to advocate for a small number of people. Okay, okay, so why am I telling you this and why does any of this matter? If I can go give myself an important piece of advice when I graduated, it would be that it's not expected that you volunteer for societies. It's actually the privilege of a society to have physicians that volunteer for them. And I think that people should be a lot more um, discerning in who they support and kind of where they spend their money and time. And so in that light, I just wanted to give a little bit of feedback about Rocker and some other policies that were released and then just some thoughts about Astro overall. Um, I want to focus on three, quote, works, because not all of them are policies, but these three things were released this year in 2023, and that's the Rocker, the ROCR, the Proposed Payment Model, the Proton uh, Model Policy, and then the Workforce Study. Um, let's start with the Rocker. Um, I actually want to start by pointing out what I think is good. I, I actually like a lot of this policy. I think that the site-neutral payments are great. I think the bundled payments are great. I'm a recently uh, recovering specialist, now a generalist, and I got to tell you, like things like breast cancer, just talking with my team, talking with payers about how I want to treat these patients and then reviewing the data, it, it drives me nuts. And so having a bundled payment model where I can just treat the patient the way that I think is the best without having to argue with whether something's called IMRT or compensated 3D or whatever, that is fantastic. So I love that. I also really like how the payments are dispersed. Uh, it was mentioned in the webinar that the payments are going to be dispersed at the beginning and then at the end of treatment, I believe. But an important thing is you actually still get paid even if the patient does not complete the care episode. And that actually was not a feature of the ROAPM. And so this is like if a patient passes away like 10 days after you finish radiation, there's a whole discussion to be had about that, but the center should be paid for that service that they delivered. Um, I don't think that was the case under the ROPM, but someone can certainly correct me. Anyway, this is a good change. Also, I love the transportation assistance. I think that's genuinely fantastic. I realize it's a little controversial, and there are actually some cool discussions to have about it, but I just genuinely love to see money going directly to centers to support things that we know help patients start and complete their radiotherapy courses. Let's talk about the bad. Um, I want to start by talking about the carve-outs, and that's going to lead me into talking about the Proton model policy. So obviously, one of the carve-outs is the carve-out for proton therapy. Um, there's also a carve-out for um, adaptive radiotherapy, which is not defined anywhere on the website or in the documents. And then there's a carve-out for the PPS-exempt centers. Um, just real quick, I think it's important that people understand that things like PPS-exempt and Medicare, sorry, 
uh, the Advantage plans, uh, those are actually coming from separate buckets and they are negotiated separate with the government as far as I know. And so I don't think it's even possible to include those. But protons, I think we could include. And I saw kind of weird or vague explanations for why it's not included. One of them was that it's low volume. Well, that doesn't make sense because anal cancer is included in the policy and there's less diagnoses of anal cancer nationwide. Diagnoses than the number of courses of proton therapy delivered in the U.S. last year. So if protons is low volume, then anal cancer should be certainly low volume, but it's not. Uh, the other thing is that if it's carved out of this policy, where do we go to see what Astro is recommending to payers and how they should cover the policy, cover proton therapy? And for this, you would look at the 2023 proton model policy update. Um, on May 3rd, an astrogram went out that explained that they have recently approved and updated the Proton Beam model policy. This is the Astro Board of Directors. Um, it said in this astrogram that they developed the policy with, quote, an internal working group comprised of proton experts and experienced radiation oncologists, as well as gathered feedback from the National Association for Proton Therapy and the Maryland Proton Treatment Center. The revised proton model policy expands upon the appropriate group one indications for protons, reorganized the group one and group two indications based on tumor site, and updated the ICD-10 list. You can go to the um, astrogram and kind of read everything there, and you should read the policy yourself. At the end of the day, what they did is they grossly expanded group one, and group one is basically people that Astro believes get, you know, get significant benefit from proton therapy and that should be paid for. And under current policies, like in Medicare, for example, a lot of those group one diagnoses from the old model policy from Astro are covered. And so the expectation here is that with this updated policy, at least some payers and probably Medicare will now adhere to this expanded list of group one uh, indications and therefore will pay for it. A couple of quick examples of the group one expansion includes now covering medically inoperable patients with a diagnosis of any cancer typically treated with surgery where dose escalation is required for the inability to receive surgery. So like basically if you're inoperable from any cancer and you want to dose escalate it, you can use protons. They now include things like GBM, things like esophagus cancer, um, and the things like retroperitoneal sarcoma, where I actually am an expert on that, I think that's an insane recommendation given that there's currently an open trial that has not resulted out, and it also is not comparing proton therapy to photon therapy. Um, anyway, I encourage you to read the policy yourself. If you feel like I'm wrong here, that this is an evidence-based policy, I would love to hear about it and be redirected here because in my read of this policy, it is way ahead of the evidence in terms of what should be supported for proton beam therapy. And just of note, I used to use this therapy in my old job. I think it has some uses, and I do think there are some patients out there that would benefit substantially from proton beam therapy. I'm a big supporter of many of the trials, I think this kind of a thing makes it very difficult to enroll in a trial because if patients have already been told that they're going to benefit from proton therapy, why would they enroll in a randomized trial that where they may not get it? The other issue here is that in this 5-3 astrogram, they point out two specific groups that helped with this policy. One is the National Association for Proton Therapy, or the NAPT, the lobby group, and the other is the Maryland Proton Treatment Center. 
And if you have not seen their website, I'd ask you to take a look because they have an extreme amount of misinformation on their website and made up data. Um, these are not the people that I would want shaping the policy to come out of my organization that's representing me. One week after this came out, Astro issued a correction in the May 10th Astrogram that basically said that all members of all practice settings that utilize all radiation modalities were part of this. Now, I did tweet something in response to this that I later took down, but it prompted a call from one of the executive staff of Astro. And during that call, I actually got pretty mad at this person. Um, I wanted to know who worked on this policy. Who's on the committee? Who, who worked on this policy? There's no names on it, and they would not tell me. When I asked if the Maryland Proton Treatment Center was involved or the NAPT, they said everyone has lobby groups. Um, I don't know if my patients that want the appropriate use of proton therapy really have a lobby group. And also, I was never told if PTCOG, who I think is kind of the more scientific organization, was included in this policy. So I still don't know. I think it's a ridiculous policy, and I do think that it should either be retracted or they should at least explain or put some names on it because it's just curious to me that um, we don't know who, who made this policy. Other than two pretty bold lobby groups that make some you know, inaccurate claims about proton therapy. So in that context, I really, really don't like this carve-out. And I'm actually kind of surprised that there's not more of a specific carve-out for proton therapy. For example, we know a number of centers are treating patients with prostate and breast cancer off trial. These are two common disease sites that make up a large proportion of patients treated with proton therapy each year in the United States. These are two disease sites with ongoing trials that have not resulted yet, and also disease sites where I would argue that the preliminary data actually makes me concerned that there could be harm with proton therapy, let alone no benefit. Someone did suggest on Twitter that carving only part of it out or leaving proton therapy in it would make substantial problems for centers. And that's fine. But who are, who is Astro advocating for? Is it centers or radiation oncologists and their patients? All right. So what else did I not like about Rocker? Um, I don't like the um, accreditation requirement. Um, a couple of things have kind of become clear to me in the last week as I've been reading this. Uh, number one, it is true that you can do any type of accreditation program. So this would include ASTRO, ACRO, or um, the ACRs. But only one of them is mentioned in the documentation, and that, of course, is ASTRO's. Uh, there's a clear conflict of interest here for them, so that was a little disappointing to see. But really, there's a conflict for any society in this setting. There is no evidence that these programs actually help quality or improve anything. They've never been tested, and they are substantial cost and a lot of work for the staff in these programs. What's really shocking about this is one of the biggest and most common critiques of the ROAPM was that it required so much work on the behalf of the clinics to be able to report out data to be able to participate in the RAPM. That was a big concern. I'd actually direct you to articles by Join Liu and others that have kind of talked about this specifically for rural or small clinics. So to not turn around and then make centers join Apex, uh, for example, as part of their pay, that's just crazy. Um, I think their estimate of $3,000 to become Apex accredited is a very, very low ball estimate. And it doesn't speak to the amount of work that physicians, physicists, and other staff need to put in to get centers accredited. So this just seems like a clear um, ignoring of that feedback that came up so often with the ROAPM, and now they've layered on an incentive to pay them to be part of this program and get paid. 
Finally, my biggest critique really has to do with the way it was presented, and I'm certainly not the only person that kind of talked about this online. Um, I think that you know a number of people have pointed out that this was a surprise. Uh, talking with um, board members and staff members of other societies, it's not clear that they were made aware of this really with any time to review it before it was released. Uh, just like the proton policy, we do not know who worked on Rocker. Um, and while I do appreciate the documentation that was provided and the model, I think it's very telling that the webinar that was provided was two physician board members, both of whom I respect greatly, explaining the model that they've spent several months developing, and then two policy staffers that are not on video, just kind of with their video hidden, and no audience. And I think that's pretty reflective of Astro's approach. I don't know if it's been like this always or it's more recent, but I think it's very unfortunate because, in my opinion, these kinds of policies should be developed democratically. And certainly it would have been nice as a member to know where my money is being spent. They hired a consultant for this, and this entire thing was under development without the knowledge of anyone. It's just a little surprising to me, and I think that taking something like this after the way that ROAPM fizzled out and then just dumping it on the field in a big surprise was definitely the wrong approach. And, you know, it really doesn't have to be like this. I've been part of other societies. I worked with ACR for a while as a fellow, and I watched their method of how they develop policies and release them. They present them on stage to an open forum. There's open discussion. Members are allowed to give feedback, and then there's votes. I'm not suggesting that this is exactly the way that things need to go in Astro, but hopefully people can see that there's a fundamental difference between open development and discussion of policies that impact everyone, and then developing something kind of in secret and releasing it to everyone. Now, I do realize that this is not final yet, but the way that we give feedback is even pretty secretive. Um, I'm not going to write up my feedback in an email uh, and send it to an anonymous email and find and like never know if anyone reads it or get any kind of feedback at all. I also would like to see what other my peers say. Why can't I see what other people are saying when they're giving feedback for this model? The only place for that right now is on Twitter, which is a mess. The other thing is that I realize this is not final and there's no deadline, but here's a tweet from Dave Adler, who's a policy staffer at Astro from June 29th of this year. He says, appreciate the RADONC members that have sent in questions, feedback to healthpolicywanted.astro.org on Rocker. To move forward, it needs broad support of the Astro community, radiation oncologists or Astro members, I don't know. So please share your suggestions, particularly practice level impact. We will get there. My practice is going to review this and give some feedback that way. Um, but uh, I think there's more than just practice level impact to be talked about here. Then he goes on to say, there's no deadline on the Hill letter as we want Radonk to take some time to assess Rocker. But please keep in mind, though, that Medicare telegraphed more cuts in the coming weeks. So we may need to move quickly with a policy solution. Okay, so is that like a threat that I better decide on this really soon? And are you moving forward without open feedback and open discussion from radiation oncologists? I don't know. So that's my feedback for the rocker. I talked about the proton model policy and then the workforce effort that was done. Again, very appreciative of the physician volunteers that have worked on these efforts, but that was done sort of closed door. Um, other than Chirag Shah, who's kind of been the face of this effort, and has come on the podcast to talk about this topic, uh, you know, I don't know who worked on it. 
Um, we'll be talking more about the workforce effort in detail. Uh, there's actually a letter that Jason had mentioned he submitted that's kind of stuck in proofs that points out some modeling issues that actually carry over and point out some significant modeling issues with the rocker policy. So I'd encourage you to listen to his podcast. Um, and we'll be talking with Trog again in the future, kind of about his work there and kind of our thoughts and kind of uh, to give a good idea of our interpretation of that workforce paper, because it differs a little bit from the way that Astro has reported that out. All right. So just to close this out, it's an important question to ask, like, why should anyone care what I think? I'm actually not a member anymore. I've dropped my membership due to a lot of this behavior and I'm pretty vocal critic. And so part of this is just explaining why I feel that way. But what do I want to see from the organization? And I actually would rejoin if some of these things changed. Um, the first thing I'd like to see is a little more transparency. Um, I'd actually point people to look closely at Astro's leadership structure. There's actually dual structures. There's doctors and these are or doctors and physicists, and these make up the executive board. So this is like the president. These are the people that you vote for. But also there's executives that are not physicians, and these are kind of like people that run the organization. So they have a CEO. Um, Dave Adler, who I mentioned, is a policy person. There's And there are others. Um, the names really aren't important because this is not a personal thing. But my question is these executives are paid quite a bit of money to run Astro the organization, and they've been around a long time. The Astro CEO has been in place for more than 20 years. Think about how much has changed in radiation oncology in 20 years. Anyway, I don't really like the way this organization is behaving. So is it not on these individuals to kind of shift the culture and change the way the organization behaves? After all, the board of directors is only there for a year and they kind of serve these positions that rotate in and out. I think it would be pretty hard for them to make some change. So I'd like to see the physicians and members kind of call on these executives to do a better job with transparency and kind of reshape the way that Astro interacts with his members. And this is not crazy. This is actually one of their points on their strategic plan is to better engage the membership. The other thing I'd like to do is I'd like to challenge the um, more senior members of the society to think a little bit about early career radiation oncologists and think about how things have changed over the last 20 years. These days, the average radiation oncologist is employed. They don't work for themselves. They work for a hospital. There's been substantial consolidation in radiation oncology. This has been published in Astro's journals. The rise of academics plays a significant role. They now hire more than half of graduating residents every year. And the pay has been fairly flat, especially if you include inflation and lots of the things that early career radiation oncologists are trying to do, like buy a house and raise a family. And again, Astro essentially collects salary data and leverages it so that these academic chairs can hire the majority of graduating residents every year. But then think about how things might look 10 years from now. I'm seeing members of Astro in their reports kind of talk about RVU inflation and passing. What does that mean? How does a radiation oncologist feel today if they're doing 9,000 RVUs, which seems to be the average, or 8,500, or 10, depending on who you ask? And we'll talk about that in the workforce study. How does that look? I did 12,000 RVUs and a lot of other extracurricular activities in a pretty um, high acuity practice, and it, it burned me out. Um, it might be easy for others to do that, but it's not going to be easy for radiation oncologists to do that nationwide. And so as these changes are happening, I'd like to see a little more advocacy for early career radiation oncologists who are the future. We're paying it forward, right? So yeah, I'd love to see a more open, transparent, supportive society overall. I'll leave you with one last thought. These are my opinions and my views, and they've changed quite a bit. 
Um, my expectations for what it would take for me to pay for and participate in a society have changed. I'd like to see societies that work for me as opposed to an expectation that I volunteer for societies. But not everyone feels that way. And generally, when I talk to radiation oncologists that are inside Astro, especially prominent ones, I love our discussions. I think that all radiation oncologists really need to band together to advocate for the field and our patients. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is by having open discussion of these complex issues. It could be that the final payment model, I don't totally agree with. In fact, I'd say that's probably likely. I don't think there's going to be a path to constraining the use of proton therapy in this country, unfortunately, but I'll have to just accept that. I love my job. I will continue to be a radiation oncologist, and someday I might even come back to Astro to volunteer my time there. But right now, when things are secret and there's no transparency, it's just not going to be possible for me. I think Astro, if you want to engage more members and grow your membership, listening to some of this feedback that lots of people are telling you, not just me, would really help. I hope you all have a nice weekend.